You're listening to The Hold Fast Podcast. Welcome to season two of the Hold Fast podcast. I am your host, David Brandau, and I've been on quite a journey, both personally and professionally, since we wrapped up season one. But guess what? We're diving into a brand new season, and I couldn't be more excited to be here with you again. Last season, we investigated the Bible itself, and I thought a lot about the way that season ended. And I just want to leave it just as it is. If you're a Christian, the Bible is way more than just pages and ink. It's a powerful beacon of truth. And if we don't dig into the why behind our beliefs on the scriptures and the importance of constantly pointing back to its wisdom, we find ourselves vulnerable to anyone who claims God spoke to me. In churches today, false beliefs about the Bible are being propagated by those who are not separated from the world, but are guided by it. There are pastors, teachers, leaders, church members, and supporters who are using the Bible to condone sin. They sculpt and mold the scriptures to suit their own purposes, betraying the basis of their faith for no other reason than to be accepted, not by God but by men. These people, driven by their own lusts and desires, twist scripture to justify their lifestyle of treason to the cross. What they preach, however, is more than just words. It's a poignant betrayal of Christ's teachings, guiding the unsuspecting to death and destruction. You will not hear any doctrine that condones a lifestyle of sin on this podcast. I refuse to allow people to be ignorant of the scriptures. When you listen to this podcast, you won't hear mere words. You'll be exposed to biblical truths that have the power to strengthen your faith. I won't shy away from the unfiltered truth, no matter how disliked it becomes. You're free to walk away with your own opinion. You're free to disagree with me, but I will never waver in my stance against condemning sin. You cannot be a Christian who never changes. You cannot be a Christian who doesn't bear the fruit of true repentance and faith. I know there are church leaders listening to this podcast, and just as they're entrusted with the task of warning their churches, I too must warn those who listen to me. Salvation is so much more than attendance and lip service. It's not a fleeting moment of prayer, nor a simple affirmation on the lips. Not all who heard the teachings of Jesus found salvation. 
Not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's our responsibility as leaders to steer those God has entrusted to us through the perilous waters of false security. We must teach, guide, and accompany those God has entrusted to us on their journey towards a genuine connection with the living God. If you're listening to this episode and you're not a leader, guess what? It's not just your pastor's responsibility to be the one who teaches you the truth of the Bible. Yes, pastors play a part. Yes, they are supposed to lead and guide. But you are responsible for your own spiritual growth, your own relationship with Christ, and your own fruits of faith and repentance. You're not a passive, casual observer. You're an active participant in your own growth, connection, and transformation. I get so frustrated when I meet people who proudly declare themselves Christians, who've been in the church for years but don't understand basic biblical truths and principles. Leaders, I know you're nodding along, as you've undoubtedly seen these people in your congregation, but whose fault is that? Is that the fault of a lazy hearer who does not follow the preaching, or who hears every Sunday but does not act on what they heard? Or is that the fault of a leader who only leads on Sunday? There are countless pews across the country filled by people, all dressed up in their Sunday best who have attended church for years, yet they teeter on the edge of truly knowing Christ. They're on the cusp of eternal life brushing against salvation's doorstep, yet they remain just a step away. We watch these people migrate in and out of the church. And I'm not talking about the ones hurt by a harsh word or those disenfranchised by unscriptural sermons. I'm talking about the people who always have a reason why a church wasn't good enough for them. Those who blame their lack of spiritual growth on someone else's actions or a pastor's words. I'm talking about people in the church and outside the church whose lives remain entangled in sin as if they had never heard the gospel. Look, if you leave a congregation because the church hurts you or because of sermons that didn't inspire you, and your response is to walk away from the entire concept of church, spiritual growth, and self-improvement, you're not a Christian. You're a deserter and a traitor of the kingdom of God. And just so you don't think, I'm speaking from some moral high ground here. I've stumbled. I've fallen. And I've wandered away from the path more times than I can count. I've danced with doubt and turned my back on God. My record of failures is long, but my missteps don't negate the fact that God deserves to reap from me what he's given. My every heartbeat, every flicker of love, every ounce of devotion. So throw out that idea that I'm taking some holier-than-thou stance. I don't speak the truth to earn a spot in heaven. I speak the truth because I've glimpsed the beauty of God's character. He's more than deserving of a love that overflows. 
praise that resounds and devotion that's unbreakable. He's not an unknowable ancient concept devised by men. He's a personal God who's offered me the opportunity to become like him. And because I'm not dead, I'm not done. I continue marching forward. I continue speaking the truth of his words with my heart set ablaze with reverence, wonder, and awe. So with all that in mind, I want you to know there are eternal consequences for defection, betrayal, treason, and desertion from the kingdom. But what do I mean by those words? Defection, betrayal. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses declared to Israel the statutes and the judgments of God, saying, When you begin living in the towns the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman among you might do evil in the sight of the Lord your God and violate the covenant. For instance, they might serve other gods or worship the sun, the moon, or any of the stars, the forces of heaven which I have strictly forbidden. When you hear about it, Investigate the matter thoroughly. If it is true that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then the man or woman who has committed such an evil act must be taken to the gates of the town and stoned to death. This is what I mean by betrayal and defection. And this is the point of these verses. If anyone among you does evil in the sight of the Lord your God and violates the covenant, deserves to die. Those are God's words, not mine. Anyone who declares Jesus as their guiding light, their Lord, their Savior, but violates the covenant by continuing to live for themselves, that's betrayal. That's defection. It's not a casual turning away. It's a conscious and deliberate abandonment of all you've professed to hold dear. You're renouncing your allegiance and forsaking the duty you once swore to uphold. But why is this so important? Why do I feel it's important to kick off this new season with this message? Because God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Modern-day American Christians, drunk on grace, falsely believe the unmerited favor of God pardons willful, continual sin, and the consequences of such a lifestyle are covered by the blood of Christ. It does not. God's stance on defection, desertion, and violating your covenant with him was documented over 3,400 years ago. And his judgment is death. And church leaders, until we confront and address those who masquerade as Christians, yet live a double life, we perpetuate a false reality of the Christian life. We can't ignore the disconnect between words and actions. We must reclaim the name of Christian from those who tarnish it. Desertion, treason, and betrayal aren't the marks of true faith. They're not just unacceptable. They're a slap in Jesus' face as he hangs on the cross. Now hold on, hold on. Wait a minute. I know what you're thinking. Hey, that's Old Testament stuff, right? 
The grace of the New Testament wipes that slate clean. Ah, but now we're getting to the heart of this episode. In response to that thought, let me ask you a question. Who qualifies as a Christian? Let me take you on a journey through Hebrews chapter 10. And I know I won't have time to finish this train of thought in this episode, but if we start in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 14, we find the writer says, God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. The unmerited favor of God, that New Testament grace, is Jesus came to this world and died for you. His sacrifice provided a way for you. He qualifies you to receive salvation. This is the part of the gospel that grabs our attention and resonates with so many people. And if we stopped here, and many people do, this isn't the full picture. The grace of God is the invitation. The grace of God is his merciful kindness by which he turns you to Christ and keeps, strengthens, and increases you in Christian faith. God's grace increases your knowledge of him, strengthens your affection toward him, and sustains you in living a holy, consecrated life. But salvation is not just about all the things God does for you. Jesus' sacrifice invites you into relationship with God. And just like any healthy relationship, both parties must put effort into it. Grace qualifies you to receive the invitation, but what qualifies you as a Christian? Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 33, is what Jesus says qualifies you. If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money. And then everyone would laugh at you. And say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? 
And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Listen, when you got saved, did anyone sit you down and lay out the fine print of that commitment? Did anyone point you to Luke chapter 14 and counsel you to count the cost and consider the sacrifices required? Or did they just say, if you get saved, you go to heaven? This is why I am against those emotional response altar calls at the end of sermons. I'm all for people committing to God and acknowledging the Lordship of Christ. But deciding to follow Christ isn't some casual choice to be made without serious contemplation. At some point in Christian history, the fervor of evangelism deviated from the Great Commission. Jesus commanded, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. Yet somewhere along the way, disciples morphed into Christians and teach these disciples to obey all the commands blurred and to just say Jesus is Lord. The Great Commission is not about manufacturing Christians. It's about shaping disciples, molding lives into a living testimony of faith. Being a Christian is not about reciting rehearsed words. It's not a magic formula or ritual. Being a Christian is a lifestyle so impregnated with the teachings of Christ that it produces a transformative way of living, radiating his very essence. So by this biblical definition of salvation in Luke 14, are you qualified as a Christian? Have you truly embraced the mantle of discipleship? Does your Christian walk align with a biblical call to follow in the footsteps of Jesus? Church leaders, are you making disciples? Or are you just churning out defective Christians? Through your teachings, your sermons, your leadership, are you fulfilling the Great Commission? Or are you painting a picture where the only difference between Christians and unbelievers is a sprinkle of Jesus on top? This is the warning to my listeners today. It is not enough to be qualified to receive the invitation. God's grace and His grace alone qualifies us and calls us to salvation. But I beg you to live a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. I promise in the next episode, I'm going to spend some time in Hebrews chapter 10 to bring some more understanding of all the blessings of salvation. But for the sake of time, I want to skip ahead a little bit and show you how Deuteronomy still applies to us today. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 26 through 29 says, Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. 
There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. This is the New Testament, folks. There's this prevailing notion that since we no longer live under the laws of Moses, judgment has taken a backseat when it comes to believers in the here and now. There's a clamor of voices claiming that grace and freedom have doused the flames of judgment. But this belief is not only wrong, it's destructive. It waters the seeds of sin and paves the way for desertion in the church. The idea that judgment is a thing of the past stokes the fires of spiritual complacency. You want to know why you have people in your church who don't grow? You want to know why people in your church can hear a sermon on Sunday and forget what they heard by the time you get done closing out the service and prayer? It's because there's no incentive for them. The blood of Jesus was not enough for them. Jesus is not their Lord. They have not submitted their lives to him. They have received with open arms the invitation. They heard the call, but refused to walk worthy of it. Now ask yourself, when was the last time you heard Hebrews 10 verses 26 through 29 preached from the pulpit? When was the last time, church leaders, you pulled out this verse during an altar call and counseled people to count the cost before they make an eternal commitment? Pastors, don't become so addicted to the sugar-coated blessings of Scripture at the cost of sidelining the gravity of its warnings. The gospel isn't just about salvation, deliverance, and healing. It's also about a sacred obligation. And this is where it gets real. If you turn your back on this obligation, the repercussions are more severe than anything the Old Testament ever described. Why? Why would that be? It's all about the weight of rejection. Disobeying the laws of Moses. Mere words led to death, sure, but rejecting Christ after knowing his sacrifice, understanding his identity, and believing him to be the Messiah and Savior? That's not just words. It's a defiance of divine sacrifice and literal bloodshed. The writer of Hebrews invokes this imagery trampled on the Son of God. And I want you to truly grasp the weight of those words. It's supposed to be a throat punch of insignificance. A portrayal of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, beaten, and bloody, yet his existence is so unimportant, so inconsequential, that you'd think nothing of walking through his blood. Hebrews is saying death was the punishment for disobeying God's words under Moses. How much worse should the punishment be for someone who doesn't give a second thought? 
about walking through the blood that flowed from the veins of the divine Son of God, who was sacrificed for the salvation of humanity. Hebrews chapter 10 is a perfect example of the duality of the gospel. It only produces two responses, salvation or defection. If you believe, you are saved. If you reject, you are damned. For those who are qualified by grace to receive the invitation, accept it and walk worthy of it, we can expect to receive the wonderful promises of Hebrews 10, 14 through 22. By that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. And the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so. For he says, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through this curtain in the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. And this is where I want to leave off today. Through the blood of Christ, we have been qualified to receive salvation. If we live as qualified Christians, live worthy of the call to salvation, we have a boldness to come before God. We have a free and fearless confidence to draw near through Christ's sacrifice. There are not multiple paths to the Father. There is one way, and that's Jesus, through his blood, by submitting to his lordship. To appear tolerant and accepting many so-called Christians believe there are many ways to enter the kingdom of heaven. They believe this is a way to negate their responsibility to be an example of Christ on earth. They don't want to get involved in people's lives. They avoid confronting sin. They form false doctrines that contort scripture to allow themselves and others to continue living in sin. They want to reap the blessings of the gospel without putting in the work. They are traitors and defectors. These are not accidental decisions. They're not stumbling into treachery. These are false beliefs willfully cultivated to neglect their responsibilities as believers and disciples of Christ. Many quote-unquote Christians mistake being a follower with being a disciple. 
Many quote-unquote Christians think they don't have to be a disciple. Following Jesus is not enough to get to heaven. Multitudes followed Jesus after the Sermon on the Mount. They followed him to be healed and fed. At one point, they wanted to make him king because of what he gave them. But the commitment from those who followed did not last past their immediate needs and wants. Both disciples and followers are expected to observe the commandments of God, but what separates them is this. Followers pick and choose when and where they follow. Disciples literally become Christ. That's the goal of Christianity. If you're unsure of what God has called you to do, if you're a Christian and you want to know what you can do for the kingdom of God, become like Christ. This is the way that was opened to us through Christ's sacrifice. The ability to become sons and daughters of God, joint heirs with Christ. And this is where I'm going to end today's episode. I want to leave you on the high note of the blessings of receiving the gospel, but I can't stress enough the importance of holding fast. It's not just a cool statement. It's vital to a genuine Christian life. Join me next week as we finish out the thoughts I've started here today. I pray you have ears to hear what God is speaking through his word. Until next week, hold fast. Hold fast.